0: Well, this is our first meeting of 2021, and we are resuming our study on the book of Proverbs, our thematic study, through this book of wisdom. The series is entitled, Wisdom Living Successfully in a Treacherous World, and certainly that title is most apropos for today. Our specific study for this evening, our focus, is entitled, Cultivating Humility. Cultivating humility. Now, just to set some context here and the ubiquitous prevalence of arrogance and pride, I want to tell some stories. First of all, one that you might know in Greek mythology, you've probably heard of something called the fall of Icarus. Icarus was the son of the master craftsman Daedalus, according to Greek mythology, this father Daedalus was the Greek symbol for wisdom and knowledge and power. And Icarus and his father were trying to escape the island of Crete in the Mediterranean get to the mainland and so Daedalus had constructed wings to fly by and those wings were fastened to the arms by wax. And the father gave his son Icarus these instructions. Be careful not to fly too low out of complacency, too low to the sea, because if you do, the humidity of the water will clog the feathers. But at the same time, do not fly too high out of arrogance, for the sun will melt the wax and you'll lose the feathers. And as you probably remember from your high school days studying this fable, Icarus did not heed his father's advice. Out of the hubris of his attitude, he he flew too high. The sun melted the wax. He lost the feathers and plunged to the sea and drowned. Pride has been the focus of a lot of fables over the centuries because it is recognized as the chief killer of mankind. We don't need to look at fables even to find historical accounts, real accounts of pride and its downfall. Take for example Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Daniel chapter 4, 29 to 33 reads as follows: 12 months later after he had received the interpretation of a dream from Daniel, 12 months later Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Well, the word was in the king's mouth. A voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind. And your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. You could also go to the, to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, and read of Herod Agrippa I, who reigned from A.D. 37 to 42. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, and he was responsible for the martyrdom of early Christians, James in particular. In Acts chapter 12, verses 21 to 23, the historian Luke records this account. Herod had been responding to the request that was made to him by residents of Tyre and Sidon. And and you have this account joining it somewhat in the middle of the narrative. But let me read these words. You probably remember this account. That on the appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum, the judgment place, and began delivering an address to the people. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. These are vivid accounts of the the arrogance of man. And while we can look at these as kind of the, the chief most, most dramatic events, most dramatic accounts, we all recognize that these things simply illustrate what is present in every fallen human heart. It's just not recorded as these are in the pages of Scripture. Pride is such an enemy that it is only a miracle that can break its tyranny, the miracle of regeneration. But even... For those who are regenerate, pride does not cease to be enemy number one. Consider the words of Jonathan Edwards as he described the problem of pride for the Christian, for the one who has been set free from the tyranny of sin, but nonetheless faces the threat of this most deadly enemy. Edwards says this, quote, "...the first and worst cause of errors... That abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Pride is the main handle by which he has hold of the Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. Spiritual pride is the main spring, or at least the main support, of all other errors. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. Edwards is speaking of the problem of pride and how even among those who are most zealous for the ways of Christ and the ministry of the gospel, how this enemy can, can... sneak in and corrupt even some of the greatest attempts and desires and motivations. So needless to say, the the issue of pride is a big one. It's a massive issue for us, even as Christians. And so, naturally, we find it as a major theme in Scripture, the, the need to mortify pride and to cultivate humility. In fact, really, when we talk about the path of the Christian the path of the Christian life, what sanctification really is all about, when you boil it down to its most fundamental issues, it, it comes down to this. It is, is, all about, is all about mortifying pride and putting on humility. Because if pride is the root of all sin, of all other vices, humility can be likened to the root of all other virtues. And so indeed, we see this, even in the New Testament, this repeated emphasis on the need for humility and the serious, the, the serious approach we must take to the, to the killing of pride in our lives. Matthew 18, verse 4, Jesus says, Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says this, "...do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves." And launches into that great kenosis text, that great statement on Christology that is intended to serve as the paradigm for, for our own mortification of, of, of pride and our own putting on of humility. James chapter 1 verse 21 Therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls James 4 verse 6 stated also in 1 Peter 5 verse 5 as they cite Proverbs 334 God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble These are fundamental statements that speak to the very core of our existence and so it behooves us to get deeper into this, into this teaching and specifically look at what the book of Proverbs has to say about pride and humility. And so what we want to do tonight in the time that we have is look at five lessons on humility from the book of Proverbs. Five lessons on humility from the book of Proverbs. Number one, the first of these five lessons is this. True humility grows only in the fear of the Lord. True humility grows grows only in the fear of the Lord. Apart from the fear of the Lord, there is never any true humility. We must begin with an important reminder. and We've looked at this already. We looked at this actually right at the beginning of our series on Proverbs, that that biblical wisdom does not teach moralism. When we look at the book of Proverbs, it's not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not just about trying better and reforming yourself. At the very start of the book of Proverbs, we find this very important reminder. The reminder is this, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. The book of Proverbs does not teach moralism. What is moralism? Moralism is that belief. That man can improve his own moral condition by his own effort. Moralism is the idea that, hey, I recognize humility to be an asset. I recognize humility to be a a, a positive virtue, and so I'm going to make myself humble. The book of Proverbs does not recognize that as a possibility for any man to do according to his own strength. Biblical wisdom emphasizes that true moral reform, or I should say transformation, only takes place as a result of divine revelation and divine activity in the soul of an individual. Proverbs one verse seven: "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge." Proverbs three, verses seven to eight: "Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It'll be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Proverbs 8 verse 13 captures this well as well. When it says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate says wisdom personified. And then Proverbs 13 verse 13. The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. There's that concept of fear, and I just want to give a little bit of a summary, a review of what we covered several months ago when we looked at this topic of the fear of the Lord. When we see the fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs, we must understand that depending on the context, it could be emphasizing one of two sides of a coin. First of all, on the one side, we, we need to recognize that the fear of the Lord is a synonym for the revelation of God. It's how the, the, the Word of God is described. It is described as the fear of the Lord. Look at Psalm 19, verses 7 to 9, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That's not talking about your fear. That's talking about the revelation of God. And because of the impact the revelation of God has in the life of a soul, the psalmist calls it the fear of the Lord. And, We find that also in the book of Proverbs as well. This fear of the Lord, when that element is emphasized, refers to its objective nature. The fear of the Lord is from God. It is something that is taught, it is conveyed, it is learned. As I said, it's synonymous with revelation, synonymous with truth, with the commandment. And that's why the, that's why wisdom says, fear the commandment. Fear the commandments. And then there is also the other side of the coin, which is the response of man to the revelation of God. And in this sense, in certain contexts in the book of Proverbs, that concept of the fear of the Lord is expressed as a command, fear God, and it is emphasizing that subjective element, something that man expresses. It is described as a submissive, loving response to the revelation of God. The fear of God is revelation, but fearing God is our response to how God has revealed Himself. And so, in this sense, it is synonymous with love, with trust, awe, humility, and faith. It's what we read of in Isaiah 66, verse 2, where the Lord says this, It is to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit And who trembles at my word. That's the fear of the Lord. That is the right response to the revelation of God. And so therefore, we must recognize this. Wisdom teaches us that true humility, real humility, grows only in the soil of unqualified submission to the word of God and all it communicates. I like the story of Adonai Judson. He had gone from the east coast of the United States all the way to Burma back in the 19th century. First missionary really to penetrate Burma, to bring the gospel there. Had worked for years trying to to preach and, and see God save someone. And the first indigenous Burmese person, his language tutor, Grew interested in Adonaiam Judson's discussions and, and preaching about Jesus. And, and he came to Adonaium Judson and said, I'm ready to become a disciple. I'm ready to become a disciple. Now, most missionaries would say, Let me baptize you right now. You want to become a, a Christian? Sure, let's go for it. But here was a wise missionary, and he began questioning this supposed Christian, this Burmese inquirer, about his views of the Bible. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And he came to the atonement. Do you believe that God the Father punished Jesus Christ for your sin? And this Burmese inquirer responded by saying, no, God would never punish an innocent man, not even on my behalf. And notice Adoniram Judson's response and it gets to the heart of the issue that, that, that humility only grows within this, within, within this soil of unqualified submission. Notice what Adonai M. Judson said A true disciple inquires not whether a fact is agreeable to his own reason, but whether it is in the book. His pride has yielded to the divine testimony. Teacher, your pride is still unbroken. Break down your pride and yield to the Word of God. In light of that, and in light of Isaiah 66, verse 2, and, and the many other texts, it, we must understand that tr- humility will never grow in our lives if we are harboring skepticism, resistance. If we take a critical approach to the Word of God, uh, uh, if we put God in the dock and judge His Word, well, this is true, this can't be true. Okay, He says this, but I'm not going to believe it, or I'm not going to do it. Any uh, attitude of, of resistance will automatically kill any seeds of humility. Humility simply will not grow in a skeptical, critical Bible Reader. I like what Charles Bridges said in his commentary on Proverbs. He talks about how the Scriptures, when they become for us that true authoritative source of divine revelation, the impact that they have in us. Charles Bridges wrote this, did we turn from the flattering glass of self-love to the pure and faithful mirror of the law. The inconceivable deformities opening to view would constrain us to take the lowest place among the most unworthy. What he's saying is this. Humility cannot help but grow when we approach the Word of God as we ought. As those who tremble at it, and as we tremble before the Word of God, everything from the the first chapter of the book of Revelation to chapter 22, or the first chapter of Genesis to the last chapter, chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, when we approach it with trembling, it reveals to us who we are, and it automatically produces humility. You cannot approach the Word of God with a humble, state a, a trembling state and not be further developed in that lowly esteem number 2 the second lesson is this true humility acknowledges one's own personal poverty true humility acknowledges one's own personal poverty since since submission to and unreserved trust in god's word leads to a high view of god it will by necessity, lead also to a a low view of self. The more we submit to the Word of God, it penetrates us, it reveals to us who we really are, and as it does that, it brings about even more humility. And humility will manifest itself by this perception, this growing conviction, that the more I read of God's Word, the more I must believe it the more I must believe it's true. And at the same time, the more that we read it as humility manifests itself, it'll result in this conviction that I dare not believe myself. I like what J.I. Packer said, we can never distrust ourselves too much. That is a huge problem for men. The reliance upon personal intuition it's the cause for so much pride and arrogance i just know i'm right i just know my my gut tells me this is the right thing to do and you'll have a host of other brothers telling you brother we're warning you don't do it and the man will forge ahead because of his gut destroying lives as he does John Owen said, there are two things that are suited to humble the soul of man. A due consideration of God and then ourselves. Of God in His greatness, glory, holiness, power, majesty, and authority. Ourselves in our mean, abject, and sinful condition. Another Puritan by the name of John Flavel said this, They that know God will be humble. They that know themselves cannot be proud. Humility will always manifest itself in a decreasing reliance upon self, a decreasing esteem for our own intuition, our own hearts, our own understanding. Integral to true humility is the recognition of one's spiritual and personal poverty, the recognition of our personal deficiency. We are not enough. We're not enough. Notice again, Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 8. Let these words again sink in. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Sometimes we treat this just as a text for high school students who are just setting off on the path of life. No, these words are as much for us today as ever. Humility is fleshed out in this persistent skepticism About our own hearts, this distrust that my heart has it right. And it'll also manifest itself in this constant awareness of the need for counsel from other godly men. Proverbs 12, verse 15 The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 14, verse 12 There is a way which seems right to man. But in the end, it is the way of death. Proverbs 26, verse 12, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs twenty-eight, twenty-six: He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Some practical insights here. Acknowledging personal poverty means some of the following. This is very important. Think through this with me. First of all, if we are to acknowledge personal poverty, it means we must refuse to play the victim card. Playing the victim card is nothing else but pride and arrogance. It it exhibits this this idea that I deserve better. Playing the victim card is is nothing but an ugly form of, of arrogance. Stop thinking of yourself as a victim. Number two, reject the retreat into self-pity. Self-pity is, is again antithetical to humility. The, the poor me idea enslaves so many men. And it is it is a false kind of humility when, when, when you go around talking about how bad things are for you as if to try and let other people know that you're being humble in that. That's not humility. It's arrogance. Poor me. Poor me. You need to repel the mentality of grievance and offendedness. We live in a society, just constant grief over others, grievances and and offendedness. How easy people become offended today. And that is the opposite of humility. If you're living this life of grievance and offendedness, it it means you look at yourself, you look at your life as not being bankrupt and impoverished internally. You're blaming that all on other people. Saying you deserve better, you are better. It means taking responsibility for failures. Acknowledging personal poverty means you take responsibility for the errors that you have committed. Big or small. Yesterday or years ago, you take responsibility. Acknowledging personal poverty means you believe that what you do receive is better than what you deserve. It's better than what you deserve. The the bad boss at work is better than what you deserve. The obnoxious neighbor who keeps you up at night because of loud music or rambunctious kids is better than you deserve. The stubborn children, the inadequate pay, the dilapidated car. If you're committed to cultivating humility, you'll recognize that all of these things, as bad as they are, are still better than what you deserve. Moreover, acknowledging personal poverty means that what It means admitting that what you are experiencing in your life today, whatever trial and challenge there is, that it is exactly what you need. It's exactly what you need. You need the hardship because you're so far away from Christ's likeness. You need the trial because there's a lot of filing that needs to happen to smooth off those rough edges. Like what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he said this, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. You know, here's a test to use for your own life. Measure how you speak about your circumstances and and use this as a litmus test. And if you're always telling other people how bad things are for you, that's an indication. You are not cultivating humility. But if in the face of severe challenges and trials, as people ask you and as you tell about what's going on in your life, you're able to say, you know what, it could be so much worse That's an indication that humility has taken root and is growing. Thomas Watson said this, A humble saint likes that condition which God sees best for him. He is content where God has him. A proud man complains that he has no more. A humble man wonders that he has so much. Number three, the third lesson is this. True humility recognizes honor comes as a consequence and not as an effect. Now, let that think, sink in. Think about that. True humility recognizes that honor comes as a consequence and not as an effect. What does that mean? Well, all too often we live life with this assumption that we will grow in humility if we will get the reward first. Just think about that. How often do we live our lives and we think, well, I need some honor and then I'll be better. I'll need a reward and then I will grow. We think that that's the way things should work. And it's an example of the effects of sin in our thinking that we should think this way. That's not how the scriptures describe reality. It's not the cause and effect relationship that God has prescribed for his universe. Let's look at a few of these Psalms, or Proverbs. Proverbs 3, verse 34. Though God scoffs at the scoffers, He gives grace to the afflicted. And the word for afflicted there means bowed low. And it could refer both to being bowed low because of external circumstances and bowed low because of internal conviction. God gives grace to those who are already bowed low. And that, of course, is repeated in James 4, verse 6 and 1 Peter 5, verse 5. God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. Proverbs 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. Before honor comes humility. Proverbs 18, verse 12. Before destruction The heart of a man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. We see again this cause and effect relationship, that if you sow a life of haughtiness, there is no fear of God in your eyes. You can be assured of an effect. It will come sooner or later that destruction will meet you on the path. But the same is also true. You sow the seeds of humility. You bend your knee. You recognize your poverty. And God in His due time will honor you. Proverbs 22 verse 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Now this isn't a prosperity gospel promise here. But there is truth in it and it's this. That Humility does bring about long-term benefits, even in this life. No one loves the arrogant, haughty, proud person. But as much as this world hates God and everything that God stands for, even this world recognizes that beauty of the humble individual. And we can be assured that in due time, God will bring reward. Proverbs 29, verse 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Of course, this is repeated in the New Testament, Matthew 23, 12, James 4, verse 10, 1 Peter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And of course, James 4 verse 6 and 1 Peter 5 verse 5. The fundamental lesson of wisdom is this. Humility comes before honor. The cross comes before the crown. It's this very important law of cause and effect which we must grasp and implement in our own living if we are to experience success in this world. We are to remember what is the cause and what is the effect. It's not that honor, that honor produces humility in us. It's that humility will lead to honor, and we must remember that order. Moreover, humility also recognizes that the effect that it produces is implemented according to God's timing and scope. We don't determine when the honor will come, when the reward will be had. As 1 Peter 5, 6 says, it's at the proper time. God in His wisdom has promised that those who humble themselves will re- reap a reward, but it will come at the very best time. Maybe in this life, but certainly in the life to come. And that leads to a very important corollary principle, in it's this. this. So many of us want quick success, whether it's quick success in ministry, whether it's quick success in work, whether it's quick success in leadership and influence, in in whatever kind of thing that you put your hand to do. We want quick success, but let me tell you this, men. To experience quick and easy success is often poison. It is what pride uses to stoke the fires of arrogance. Yeah, we all, all pray that God would grant us success Quickly. But we must watch what we pray for because easy success, quick success, few people can handle. Certainly in the ministry. How many stories can we tell of young men graduating from seminary, quickly getting a large hearing, church grows, and in almost unbelievable speed, their lives come to ruin. I tell seminary students regularly, don't pray for numerical success fast. You're not ready for it. It'll be poison. And if the devil can't take you down through other means, he will give you success and take you down that way. Be careful about quick and easy success. I like what Spurgeon said, whenever God means To make a man great, He always breaks him in pieces first. We like the first part of that. We want to be made great. All of us do. You're not a man if you don't want greatness. We were made to strive for that. But what we don't want is the second half. We don't want to be made broken. We don't want to be crashed against the rocks first. Or at all. But that's God's way. And if that is happening in your life right now, embrace it. The waves of the torment is throwing you against the rock. Cling to that rock. That rock is Christ. Let it do its work. Let it break you to prepare you for the honor that can come. And certainly, as I've mentioned already, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, this great text of Christology alludes to the fact that the cross comes before the crown. This is part of God's economy, even for His own Son, even in the plan of redemption. The cross came before the crown. And if we go back to Matthew 4, Luke 4, what was Satan's attempt in those temptation narratives to get Jesus to bypass the cross and immediately go to the crown. And if He would have done that, it would have, made, it would have been no atonement for us. The path was through the cross, and then the crown, then the ascension, then the glorification. And we're so thankful that that's the path our Lord chose. Number four, true humility leaves it to others to promote one's accomplishments. True humility leaves it to promote others' accomplishments. Raymond Ortland said this, The fear of the Lord is not the spirit of our times. Self-esteem is the spirit of our times. Self-promotion is the spirit of our times. You just just think of social media. I don't think it's ever been as easy. It certainly has never been as easy as it is today to practice self-promotion. All these social media platforms exist for the majority of cases To either promote oneself or to try to make others envious. Just think of it this way. Just go back 50 years in time. How many of you would have taken a picture of yourself. And then written a story about yourself. And then sent it into the local newspaper and said, please publish this. And we would say, no, that's ridiculous. What Christian would do such a thing? And yet today... In social media, what do you have? Christians every minute publishing pictures of themselves and writing about themselves and publishing it not just for a local newspaper, but for the entire world. Let me give you this exhortation, man. If you're serious about practicing humility, go and look over all your social media feeds, and maybe it's always about others. It's about God's creation, the wonderful things God is doing. You make much of God, and if that's the case, keep on using that instrument for that important witness. But if you look back over your, all your posts, and you just see picture after picture after picture about you, about what you're doing, about where you're going, and about how good things you, you, you've made for yourself, you need to do some deleting. You need to do some serious deleting. Wisdom teaches that humility grows, it only exists in the refusal to make much of one's own accomplishments and status. Consider these Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 25, verses 6 to 7. Do not claim honor in the presence of the king. Do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said to you, come up here than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen interesting it is better for you to go and stand in the background and be invited to the front than to clamor to the front and be told to go to the back proverbs twenty five verse twenty seven It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it to glory nor is it glory to search out one 's own glory and and what the 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 writer here is communicating is is that this idea of searching out one's glory is is what longman the commentator says is the investigation of honor the investigation of honor the attempt to look into honor and how to gain it for oneself and the the writer here says it is not good to seek one's own glory think about that what that means it means we must determine not to Allow our minds to think about how I can get the best position for myself. How I can get, what's the, what's the pathway for me to, to, to make much of myself? To, to spread my glory. What's the best way to get there? Wisdom says, put off that kind of thinking. Proverbs 27 verses 1 to 2. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. Now, there's an interesting observation to make about what the book of Proverbs says we must confess and what we should not confess, what we must conceal and what we must not conceal. And when we look at the whole book of Proverbs, we see this. First of all, we are not to conceal, but to confess our faults to one another. Proverbs 28, verse 13. We're not to conceal our faults, Our imperfections, our errors, our sins. We are to speak of those things and confess them. That's what we're called to do. But the reverse is true regarding our feats. We are to conceal those things. Interesting. Confess your fault. Conceal your feet. That's the path of humility. There's another implication that's related to this, and it's somewhat the reverse as it relates to others. Proverbs calls upon us not to spread, but to cover the faults of another. But the reverse is true about their feats. We, when others confess to us their sins and ask for help, we are not to spread that. We are to actively try to protect them, provided that they are going in the path of wisdom. We are to conceal. There's virtue in that. Not spreading their error is all about. It's called Christian gossip. We are to conceal that, but we are not to conceal their feats. We are actually to make much of what others do. So, this is the path of wisdom. When it comes to our own approach to ourselves, we are to confess our faults and to cover our feats. But with respect to others, we are to confess their feats and cover their faults. Mortifying this kind of self-promotion means this, we must refuse the humble brag. When when we're serious about not promoting ourselves but leaving it to others, it means we must refuse the humble brag. The humble brag is that way of inserting boasting in a way that appears to look derogatory for us. You know, yeah, I... uh, You know, I've committed myself to pray two hours a day, but you know, when I I get past one hour, it just it gets real difficult. Yeah. Pray for me that I can. I'm struggling to get up to to that two hours a day of prayer. I'm I'm you know, one hour is just oh, it's so hard. That's a humble brag. Practice the discipline of self forgetfulness. Forget about yourself. Forget about your achievements and where you stand in the standings. Now, that to us, when we hear that, we think that is, I can't do that. It's impossible. It means denying my own existence. No, it doesn't. It's freeing. When you don't compare yourself with others all the time, you just forget about yourself and just see what God is doing in others' lives and give God glory for that. Practice self-forgetfulness. It means being content with silence and secrecy regarding your own charity and sacrifice. Learn to take joy in being the anonymous donor. Learn to take a special sense of of gratitude and, and satisfaction and contentment and doing things behind the scenes that others will never even know. There's something so refreshing about men who do that. They just do things. You don't even know who they are. And that's what makes the body of Christ so beautiful is when that is active and you have men just doing things for each other and you never know who they are, but they're just happening and it's such a wonderful environment to be in. There's no clamoring for, for the prize. It means learning to rejoice sincerely in the accomplishments of others. And this is not flattery, but it's real gladness. Real gra- gladness. In what others do, and you can't. You don't have that giftedness, you don't have that ability, you don't have that potential or strength. Others are doing it, and you're not, you're not bummed. Why couldn't I do that? You know, it's kind of interesting at a shepherd's conference, you know, you have all these pastors. <laughs> and I'm in there, you know, in that category, and you just think, how many of them would would just would be ready to fight in order to stand behind the pulpit and preach? You know? You know, when is it that we could just sit back and just enjoy the preaching of the Word of God without that competition. And the same goes for all other areas of ministry in the church, where you don't have to look and say, I should be doing that. That should be me up there. We're just glad that that person is there and he's doing a great job. It means trusting in the Lord's promise that he will never forget what you have done for his glory. Again, it's not to say that what we do for the glory of God will be forgotten. It doesn't matter. No, God keeps His account. He will not forget. But when we are committed to, to, to letting others speak of our accomplishments, and, and when we are focused on speaking about others' accomplishments, we can rest assured that when the time comes, in His own time, He will give a due reward. Trust that. Trust it. He will not forget. I like what C.S. Lewis says, and we're coming near to the end here. This quote, I just, I just love it how he describes a humble man. And this is my prayer for you. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. Probably, all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seeks to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Finally, number five, and really quickly, true humility escapes the righteous judgment of God Humility puts you on a path that takes you away from the wrath of God. Proverbs 3, verse 34. Though God scoffs at the scoffers, He gives grace to the afflicted. Proverbs 6, verse 16 to 17. Now get, get this, this wording here because it's, it's so powerful. He doesn't mince any words. Solomon says, There are six things which the Lord hates. He has seven, which are an abomination to him, and the first one in the list is haughty eyes. Proverbs eight verse thirteen: The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverted mouth. I hate. Proverbs sixteen twenty five: The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. Proverbs sixteen five: Everyone who is proud in heart. Is an abomination to the Lord, assuredly he will not be punished. Over and over through Proverbs and throughout all of Scripture, you have the strongest of language reserved for the pride, for the proud, for the prideful, for the arrogant, for the haughty. And this is what I want to end with tonight. This last one. We're talking about cultivating humility, but what if humility isn't even a part of your life? What if it hasn't even sprouted? Well, this last lesson is is for you. Understand this, that if humility is not a part of how you live your life, if you're marked by arrogance and pride, no matter how you try to to disguise it, be assured of this, the Lord hates it. The Lord hates it. But as I said at the very beginning, there is something more powerful than a proud human heart, and that is the grace of God. The grace of God that can break through the hardest of hearts and humble that heart to make that heart long for God and His Word. If that's you tonight and you're that proud person, that's the prayer you need to pray. Lord, break my heart. Smash it. Remove it from me. Give me a heart of flesh, a heart that trembles at your word, a heart that is ready to forget self and focus on you, O Lord, and your goodness. These are the five lessons from the book of Proverbs. Let us pray now and ask that the Lord would impress these lessons upon our own lives. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us together. When we look at the world around us, we do see arrogance abounding, hubris everywhere. And if there was a time that reminded us of the dangers and the fate of such arrogance, it is now. And so, Lord, we come before you and pray. Remove our blind spots. Open us to realize the pride that still remains. And as we sang earlier, we ask that you would conquer that pride. Remove it from our lives, even if it means breaking us to pieces. Make us truly humble men. We ask for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the good of his church and for the spread of the gospel. Amen.